0: Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Over the past couple of days, we've seen unprecedented movement in the price of oil, with the expiring May contract trading at significantly negative levels. Today, I'll be joined by Blake Haxton, Energy Analyst at Diamond Hill, to discuss exactly what happened in the markets and what we should expect going forward. From a purely technical standpoint, as the May contracts expire, Anyone left in a long position on the contracts needs to take physical delivery in May. To avoid taking delivery of a product of which there is very little storage available, long positions needed to get out at any price to avoid having to deal with taking delivery of the physical product. That's the high-level viewpoint. Now we're going to dig a bit deeper into the events of the past week or so with Blake to better understand what we're seeing in the oil market. We're all working from home at this point, and we've recorded this podcast via the internet, so I'd like to offer apologies for any deficiency in the sound quality. As we continue through this unprecedented time of lockdowns and quarantine, please stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Diamond Hills Energy Analyst, Blake Haxton. Thank you and enjoy. Blake, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. We'll jump right to the questions. Uh, in the introduction, I provided a high-level overview of what's happened, uh, what happened on Monday. Um, but could you dig into the events that occurred and what exactly uh, is going on in the oil markets?
1: So the, the events of Monday where oil prices turned negative for the first time ever, um, or at least the quoted front month futures price turned negative. Uh, and the distinction there being uh, the, the price of oil is usually quoted as the next month's futures contract. Uh, that's being created, and that's still a, a financial contract, not a physical contract. Uh, but at the date of expiration, it becomes a physical contract. The holder at the date of expiration does end up taking delivery of the oil. So financial buyers uh, that were up against the last day of the contract, which that contract does expire today, at the, the 21st, so um, as we approach expiration, ordinarily financial buyers would sell those contracts to physical buyers who would then take delivery. Well, apparently, based on the price action, there were a lot more financial uh, players in the market than there were physical players, and there was not enough physical capacity in the market for uh, physical deliveries to step in and take those contracts on their hands. So uh, it was an absolute fire sale if you were holding some of those future contracts, and they just had to get out of them at any price because they truly had no other choice. Uh, And a lot of that is a function, as I say, of the lack of storage that's in the market right now.
0: So it's clear that, that things really started to come unhinged in the oil industry in, in early March when Russia and, and OPEC failed to, to come to any kind of agreement on production cuts. And in fact, OPEC then took the opposite approach after the failed meeting and ramped up production. Um, so we had a glut of supply combined with a lack of demand, uh, which, as we know, creates a dislocation of price. But oil, as you, as you mentioned a little bit in the first question, oil is unlike most products when it comes to less profitability to produce is you can simply shut down or reduce your production of widgets or gadgets until demand comes back. And you mentioned storage, but let's talk a little bit about the dynamic of storage and how that can exacerbate that dislocation of supply and demand.
1: Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, it's, not, it's not as easy as I suspect the market thinks to turn off and turn on some of, these, uh, some of these wells or some of these producing projects. It does depend where you are. It depends on the geology. It depends on the region, so on and so forth but it's really not that simple. Um, Getting these projects turned back on is in some cases very, very expensive. And in other cases, uh, they'll never come back. So the cost is not just say your operating cost of the well or your price to get the barrel out of the ground. It's really a lot more complicated than that. Now the storage element of that compounds the issue because ordinarily if prices were to drop below uh, below marginal cost or below production cost, so to speak, what you would do is and maybe, maybe reduce production, you know, maybe reduce your capital expenditure, but you'd still try and keep producing those barrels because even though it's a short-term loss, again, you're not taking those long-term costs of shutting down and starting up and all those things. And that works just fine as long as you've got some place to store the oil in the meantime. You know, storage acts as that buffer for the physical commodity when prices are, are more volatile than uh, producers like to see. Well, right now, that buffer is going away. Uh, at the moment, no one really knows exactly how much spare capacity is in the market. And that's just because of how distributed oil storage globally is. Uh, there are some interesting numbers that some firms actually use satellites to try and measure the, the height on floating lid tanks to see how much oil is in storage, so you can get some estimates. But the better, the better metric is actually just to directly observe the market where oil is trading and, like we saw yesterday, if there were players in the market that had available storage, they would have been stepping in to to take those contracts and, and earn the, the storage difference. The contango of the curve, where futures prices um, you know out in the future are much higher than futures prices closer to us uh, chronologically, are significantly higher this the we're calling in steep contango right now uh, several dollars up is ten dollars a barrel over just the course of a few months, which Ordinarily, if you could buy the oil and store it and then sell it forward, uh, that's a pretty nice profit. Uh, again, assuming you have the storage. So the only way we get to that shape of the curve is if storage is really in a crunch. So the most directly observable uh, data is, is what's going on in the futures market. And from we, as we can see, that problem is not going away. The other side of the equation is, all right, when does supply and demand actually uh, reach an equilibrium? And as of yet, there has not been enough reported shut-ins to match demand. Uh, But those are both estimates. We don't know exactly how much oil we're still burning, although we can get pretty close. Uh, And we're not sure exactly how much we're still producing, given that this market has become a day-to-day and week-to-week issue, whereas normally oil inventories are measured over, over a couple months and can be smoothed out and spread over that period. So a lot of unknowns still, but... Uh, no question, there's still going to be pressure on the physical markets.
0: So we've seen oil shocks in the past due to uh, things like the, the attacks of September 11th, uh, as well as the financial crisis uh, and other, other periods in, in history as well. Where do the events of the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, given this you know, really started kind of mid-March, uh, compare to those type of events in our nation's history?
1: You know, there's really no analogy for what's just happened. Uh, compared to historically in the oil markets um, with maybe a few rare exceptions early on when the industry was truly in its infancy, you know, at the beginning of uh, maybe the beginning of the 20th century, but ordinarily in the oil industry, we'll see either a supply or a demand shock, um, you know, demand shock in the sense of maybe 08, 09 when when obviously travel dropped so quickly with the financial crisis, uh, supply shock, maybe uh, 19, you know, 1984, some of the, um, geopolitical issues we faced in the past, but um, to see both at the same time where we had OPEC essentially bringing on more, mar- you know, overproducing, uh, producing where it was not necessarily economic. And then on the heels of that, as you pointed out, this tremendous demand uh, issue, uh, you know, the, the oil price is really driven by a supply shock for maybe a week or two, uh, in my opinion. And there's no there's No necessarily right answer there, but what started as a supply issue with the OPEC deal falling apart rapidly developed into a demand issue as the world came to grips with just how impactful the the quarantine was going to be so in terms of the speed and the depth and the just in an absolute sense the volumes of dislocation, um, I mean this is just totally unprecedented.
0: So I, I've got to imagine that producers are scrambling right now trying to theoretically ramp down production because, again, there's, there's nowhere to put it. Um, how quickly can this be done? I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, but what's, what's involved in the process? Because I hear people on, on Bloomberg and CNBC talking about, okay, well, we can turn them off, whether it's, it's shale or whatever it may be. Uh, we can turn them off and turn them on again. But there's cost associated with that. So what's the, what's the process of, of shutting down a well? Yeah,
1: turning on and off wells is not necessarily as simple as it may at first appear. Certain wells, like shale wells, are relatively easy to turn off in the sense that the oil is still going to be in the ground. There's some risk of it seeps away throughout the formation that has been fracked. But generally speaking, those are not permanent losses when you shut in wells of that type. Again, it depends on a lot of of different factors. But it's possible. You can... Uh, you can sort of turn them off at the at the wellhead and you're not going to end up being too detrimental to your overall production. Um, same thing actually goes with some offshore wells. Now, the geology is very different because what you've done is in the offshore space, you've, you've hit a large conventional oil trap. And you can think of uh, shale sort of like a sponge and a conventional oil trap sort of like a big balloon down under the ground. Uh, for shale... What they do is they go down and, and shoot a bullet through that sponge and try and connect all those little cells that have oil in them so that the oil can flow through the cells and back out, uh, back out up the well. Now, if you don't flow the oil, a lot of the oil tends to stay in the sponge, and maybe you can go get it later. Maybe you just need to go, you know, they call refrac it, um, you know, repressurize it, pump some more fluid, pump some more sand, and then you can get the oil later. Uh, in the offshore, because you're dealing with that sort of high-pressure balloon down there, a good well will punch a hole in that balloon. The pressure will push the oil up out through the well. And if you cap that well or turn off, the, uh, turn off the spigot, so to speak, if it's a good quality trap, meaning that geology doesn't let the oil seep away, then you don't end up losing very much over time. Uh, it's, still, it's still viable production. Uh, so certain, certain wells onshore are the same way. Saudi Arabia is sitting over a conventional oil, oil field, uh, that they get their production from, which is why they can, they can ramp and, uh, and turn off production pretty quickly. Having said all of that, there are certain projects that are not that way at all. Um, one of them, like in, in what's usually called tar sands or heavy sands, is when those projects are turned off, the way they're produced um, actually does degrade the rock or the quality of the formation that the oil is coming out of. So again, I'll give a quick example. A lot of these tar sands uh, wells are actually produced by what's called steam assisted gravity drainage. And the simple way to think about that is instead of just drilling one well and either fracking it or hoping you hit a, hit a uh, reservoir down there and oil comes back up, you drill two side by side and then you pump steam through one of them that melts the oil so it can flow back out the other well. And that works because the oil in that formation really is sitting there like heavy oil in, in a bunch of sand. Well, if you cool that reservoir down and you stop pumping that steam and stop producing that oil, that reservoir will re-solidify. Um, I mean, it will go from, you know, a liquid that, I mean, it's not, not like gasoline or anything like that. It's still uh, fairly viscous, but it will go from that to about the consistency of a hockey puck uh, if you don't keep it warm. So you can see the problem if you shut down an operation like that, getting it started up again it can, be, can take a very long time and can be very expensive. So what we're seeing operators do is that's really the, the asset of last resort, uh, if they can avoid it. They'd like not to shut those down if they can help it. But this is going to be an operator-by-operator operator play. I mean, there is no easy solution here, in my view. The Texas Railroad Commission, which is actually the body in Texas which oversees oil production, is trying to get together this week. And there's been speculation they might impose a curtailment on the whole industry they haven't done that in many decades. Uh, there is precedent. They used to do it, I think it was the 60s was the last time it occurred. But none of the producers seem to be on the same page, or at least uh, there's, not a, there's not a large uh, agreement in who would cut what and who would get access to which pipeline and so on and so forth. I and mean, you can imagine all the problems uh, and all the, the varying interests there. So what we're going to see, I think, is who can get their production taken away who gets backed up all the way to the wellhead first and then we're going to and that's going to determine uh, who shuts in first and the steps they have to take.
0: So if I'm a if I'm a conglomerate and I own fracking I own you know some of the offshore and then I own some of the the heavy sand tar type oil uh, and I have to decide you know what I'm going to shut down and in order I would shut down the fracking because it's quickest then the offshore and then the last thing that I would shut down is, is the one that you mentioned, the last example that utilizes steam. That's kind of the order that I would go in. But are there that many companies that have that broad expanse to the different types? Or are we just going to see, you know, the fracking company shut down and then maybe the, the offshore and then finally some of the, some of the sands or, or the tar type?
1: It's a great question. So there are a few. Um, for example, ConocoPhillips owns uh, all of the assets, all, owns several types of the assets you just mentioned. The second consideration here is the physical location of those fields. So, for example, those heavy tar sands, a lot of them are in Canada. Well, Canada's really struggled with large. Uh, uh, transportation costs for their crude over the last few years anyway. And that's for the simple reason that it takes a long time to get oil out of Canada into the Gulf or into a tanker at the coast, or it can get to a refinery and be used. So for the Canadian players, it doesn't necessarily matter that, you know, if you were, if you could wave a magic wand, those would be, those would be the assets you would turn off last for economic purposes. They're going to be so backed up that it just doesn't matter. So we are seeing projects in Canada begin to shut down um, not necessarily the most economic uh, decision if you were trying to regulate the industry as a whole globally. Obviously, that, that's, that's unrealistic. But um, those are the kind of dislocations in supply that we do want to be paying very close attention to because over the long run, those kinds of projects shutting down is what's going to create an undersupply uh, as we see going forward, sort of a structural shift downward. Now, to your point around offshore and shale, you can shut those down and bring them back fairly quickly, um, you know, not overnight, but, but they're, they're fairly responsive to demand. So even if those, those assets get closed in or, or get reduced or even throttled back uh, I would view that more as a deferral of barrels as opposed to barrels leaving the market, so to speak. Uh, so that's what we're watching for. Um, and we're going to try and try and keep very close tabs on that, uh, that moving forward.
0: So for the next question, I'll shift to the equity markets and energy stocks, uh, as measured by the S&P 500 Energy Sector Index, uh, were down just over 3% on April 20th uh, and are now down uh, just over 44% since the beginning of the year. Given what we saw on the 20th of April, this, this past Monday, you know, why didn't the equity energy sector take an even bigger hit?
1: I was sort of surprised to see that it didn't take a bigger hit, but I was also a little bit impressed to see that it seems to me the equity markets got that one about right in the sense that they understood the dislocation being sort of this, this expiration and storage issue uh, on the contract itself. So that was pretty well understood. I think the market generally got the gist of what was going on. Um, And the market's really discounting in, like we talked about earlier, the entire future strip going out several years. That's, in my experience, I think that's a good rule of thumb. Of that's how the equity market tends to digest oil prices. And we did see the, the strip come down. We saw, uh, we, we saw prices in the June contract and the July contract uh, decrease, which, again, does account for some of the decline in equity prices. But those out-year uh, projections, you know, what does oil do at the end of 2020? What does oil do in 2021, 2022? Those are the numbers the equity market is still going to keep in mind. And, and of course those, those did not go, ne- those certainly didn't go negative. Uh, but the volatility there is, is much less than, uh, than we've seen in the, in the front month, uh, futures prices. It's been so beaten up, uh, on a number of metrics, it looks cheap. Um, I think you really got owners in the equity at this point that are going to be long-term holders, um, are thinking they're calling a bottom, so to speak. I mean, that's, that's not the way we think about it, but, uh, I would suspect that uh, the people that were trying to play short-term oil prices or rather use equities as a way to play short-term oil prices have probably been out of those businesses for quite some time. So I think the volatility to the downside is going to be a little more muted from here. Um, but again, that's, that's more speculation than anything.
0: The last question for you. The price movement since the beginning of the year is unparalleled, culminating in this historic negative level that we saw uh, on Monday. What are the longer-term implications for the oil industry, and what do you think it's going to look like six to 12 months down the road or even further? You know, The
1: issue we really need to pay attention to is, like we talked about a little bit with the Canadian oil sands issues and uh, those projects specifically, is how many barrels come off the market permanently. And that's sort of step one in my analysis. Do we see supply go away that won't come back? Um, you know, supply out of Saudi Arabia – UAE, Kuwait, sort of the big OPEC nations. I don't expect that to go away forever and they still have the capacity to produce those barrels. I view that as more of a deferral than a elimination. So that to me means that we're not necessarily going to see this huge snapback in prices that um, you might ordinarily expect in a commodity type market where uh, you know the uh, sub equilibrium production is sustained for a period of time. Having said that, there's certainly a possibility that we reach a structural undersupply situation coming out of this year into next year. Now, a lot of that's going to be driven by demand. How quickly does demand return? Uh, demand for which products? Uh, does travel begin to pick back up? All of those questions, which which you know at this point is anyone's best guess. But if we do get to the end of the year and we see a a significant uh, underinvestment in the industry, then we could get out a couple of years and and see a situation where. Uh, the industry has moved into undersupply and we, we go back to prices higher than we saw at the beginning of this year, which was 50 to $60 a barrel oil. Um, I want to float another idea, uh, just to kind of keep it on the radar is given how unprecedented this is, you know, and that's, you know, for every facet of society, really not just oil, there are going to be second and third order effects, or at least there very well could be that could also throw a wrench in this equation. For example, uh, what are the geopolitical implications of a lot of relatively unstable nations that rely on oil revenue going forward when now that revenue has essentially gone away. For example, Venezuela is sort of the case in point for this. The powers that be the regime has basically stayed in power on a very small product, oil producing basis over the last few years. And it's been, it's down drastically from where it was even a decade ago or, uh, but it's still that's the, that's what's kept them in power. Well, that revenue has essentially gone away in this environment. So, if we take the re, the remaining revenue of the government away, devastating that may be to the population in general. What's the second and third order effect of that? You know, does that open the country up such that they can, you know, do they become a democracy or some sort of uh, or some sort of government that's more open to production? And then maybe we get back to peak levels of. Uh, you know, two and a half, three million barrels a day up from, you know, four or 500 now. Uh, again, I'm, I'm playing politics here. I'm sort of taking my CFA hat off, but these are really very, very important considerations. You know, the, as as everyone got reminded of uh, painfully in March, you know, there are, there's a huge political question in oil markets and it's not just you know, sort of your, your, your basic, marginal cost of supply and and discounted cash flow analysis that drives these things. So we want to be aware of that. Uh, Those things can happen and will matter. So um, got to keep an an eye on on a lot of things here.
0: Great stuff. Uh, Blake Haxton, oil analyst, Diamond Hill. Uh, Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Hope everything is well with you and, and stay safe.
1: Hey, likewise, Doug. Thanks for having me.
0: This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.